Welcome to The Hidden World of Women, a podcast brought to you by Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. My name is Emma and I'll be your host for today's episode. Today I'm joined by another absolutely amazing woman. I'm joined by Dr. Jenny Brockus. Jenny is a wife, a mother. She's the author of a fantastic book, Thriving Mind. She's a keynote speaker and she's board certified as a lifestyle medicine physician, which is a bit of a mouthful. So maybe we'll start there. What is a lifestyle medicine physician? Hello, Emma. Oh, yes. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you for the curly question. Um, Let's get that out of the way to start with. (laughs) Most people have no idea what a lifestyle medicine physician (laughs) is. Um, I trained as a a medical practitioner. I worked as a GP for many years here in Perth with my own practice um, and was um, then subsequently events occurred, which led me to leave general practice. And I was trying to find a way forward. What could I do? And having explored other things completely unrelated to medicine, I came back. But instead of going back into general practice, I fell in love with what I learned was called lifestyle medicine, which to me is how health should really be approached. Lifestyle medicine is all about prevention. So we start from the place of what's right with you? How can I help you to stay well? So it's a very different lens that we look at people through. And so it's about primarily prevention. It's also that if somebody develops an illness, whether it's physical, mental or whatever, uh, we look for ways to address that using lifestyle choices first, um, not Sings ignoring my heart. medicine and everything else that goes with that. Yeah. But uh, for example, if somebody came in to see me um, and had symptoms of anxiety or depression, Rather than reaching for the prescription pad and me saying, oh, I think you need to take one of these, Mm -hmm. it would be, tell me about your sleep pattern. Tell me about what's going on in your life. Tell me what's, you know, has anything else changed? Um, Has your eating pattern changed? Are you getting any exercise? You know, all those things that contribute to our whole being Mm -hmm. because they have a significant impact on how well we are and how well we function. And very often, if you address those factors, if they've got a bit out of whack, you restore the person to health and well-being without having to necessarily also give them the medication. Now, if somebody comes with an infection, that's different. Yeah, (laughs) no amount of cycling is going to make that infection go away. (laughs) So, So lifestyle medicine is all about, well, let's see what we can do to keep people well in the first place. Beautiful. Now, you focus on um, on thriving. Is yes. That so, and thriving as a whole being and a whole person? Yes. So what that means is that uh, for me, health is about looking at an individual as a whole being. So instead of compartmentalizing people into Um, bits of body and brain (laughs) because that's what the medical model does you know we we get specialists who specialize in brains or hearts or lungs or big toes or whatever Mm. so it's it's just a slightly different approach so um, I'm particularly passionate about mental well-being because I think it's been kept apart from the complete picture for too long because basically if we address Uh, our body's needs we automatically take care of our 
brain and our minds needs. Mm -hmm. And if we're taking better care of our mental well-being, we're automatically taking better care of our bodies. So it's a win-win. Yeah, definitely. It's better. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first time (laughs) I heard you speak uh, was at a Whitwer event and, you know, speaking about this and I was, I was there for a kind of another purpose, but found myself stopping and it was the first time I'd ever heard somebody who was a medical doctor who actually spoke about that connection and spoke about that whole person approach to medicine. Um, mm. And, you know, I was working so I couldn't cry, but otherwise I think I might have. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't cry. That wasn't the intention of my speech at all. <laughs> I am a bit of a sap. So, you know, <laughs> I laughed as well, if that makes it better. Yeah. Oh, good, good, yeah. good, good. Yes. Can we take a minute and just go back and talk about what what happened that made you reassess and that made you go from that busy GP um, to having that kind of reassessment of life and changing where your focus was? Sure. I had spent a long time building a very successful group medical practice, which I was very proud of. Uh, I had a number of associate GPs who worked alongside with me. I had a number of wonderful staff. I had the most beautiful clientele. Uh, I just loved my patients so much. Um, However, I also came from a background where I'd always been very driven. Um, I was very dedicated, very committed, very caring. I cared deeply about my patients and my staff. Um, but I also did it to the exclusion of myself. So I fell foul of my own good intentions um, and failed to see or chose to ignore, actually, Mm -hmm. the warning signs indicating that I'd taken on too much, I was pushing too hard, and something was going to give if I didn't step back. But because I ignored everything, I basically reached the point of collapse whereupon it was a Friday afternoon, I'd had chronic head and neck pain for months that the local physio hadn't been able to address adequately and I was fed up with taking painkillers. So I went off to see an osteopath who has a slightly different approach. Mm -hmm. And I was in his surgery and he was a beautiful man and he was looking at my neck and looking at my shoulders and telling me this story about how he'd met this doctor who had been having similar symptoms and the basic problem turned out to be they were burnt out. And as he shared that story, I could feel myself going into that space of, I'm about to faint. I don't know if you've ever had that yourself, Emma, but it's a horrible feeling when you feel, oh, my blood pressure's down down in my boots. Everything's starting to go black. And I just zonked out completely. I was out cold on the floor. And um, the osteopath's so gone. Oh God, I've killed another one. So having come to and found this rather concerned-looking man, sort of looking over me, I said, "Look, I'm, I was terribly embarrassed." I said, "I'm very sorry about this. I'm absolutely fine." So I picked up my belongings, rushed out, rushed home, collapsed in a heap at home, and I never went to back to work in my practice again. Oh wow! Uh, I had reached that tipping point where uh, my level of exhaustion was such I could no longer function yeah I was mentally physically cognitively emotionally completely spent I was like an empty shell my husband knew something hadn't been right for a while but all of a sudden he was faced with this this wife (laughs) who 
couldn't do anything. I was in bed. I, you know, to try and get dressed in the morning was just beyond me. I couldn't function. It was horrible. It was really, really horrible. So uh, the outcome was I lost my business, lost my practice. And the level of guilt and shame mm. that was associated with that was massive. Uh, and it took me 12 months to recover properly so that I could actually sort of go around and then feel I was like me again. Yeah. But the yeah. lessons learned were enormous. And so the 12 months actually gave me not only a gap year, as I called it, <laughs> but an opportunity, like you suggest, to, to reassess, you know, what, what, what had I missed? What had I chosen to ignore mm-hmm. uh, that could have prevented that from happening? And looking back on it now, it, it must have seemed so glaringly obvious to other people. And yet they obviously either didn't feel able to speak up because I was the boss mm. or my husband didn't understand what was going on. He just thought I was a bit stressed. So I was losing weight and I was probably a bit sort of irritable, more irritable than usual. <laughs> but he didn't get just how serious the problem had become before I went whoop, and fell in the heap. So looking back now, how long, so you said it took you 12 months after that falling in a heap before you started to feel like yourself. Yeah. And hindsight's an amazing thing. How long okay. prior, yeah, <laughs> how long prior to you falling in that heap do you think it had been since you had felt like yourself? That's an interesting question because I'm not sure I've got mm. the answer. I know that the six months or so leading up to the collapse were probably the time that I really could have done something Mm. differently because I had recognized that I was having panic attacks and I managed to dissociate from them thinking oh this is what a panic attack feels like well now I know but I know it's not going to kill me so it's all right and I could see I was losing weight but hey which one of us doesn't like to lose weight you know (laughs) it's okay I shall never have to go on a diet again You know, and all this rationalization and stupid stuff going on in my head. Anyway, but if I'm honest, it wasn't just six months. It was probably a couple of years before that, where little by little, bit by bit, uh, some of the joie de vivre, some of the passion um, and love for what I did was gradually being eroded. And I didn't see it at first. It was when I realized I'd stopped caring. And I really knew I was in trouble. I think there's an analogy um, that I quite like, and it's um, mm-hmm. the paper towel analogy. And mm-hmm. you know when you you use one pe- you know one piece of paper towel and you don't notice the roll going down, and you use another yes. piece of paper towel and then another and another, and it takes a fair amount of using that paper towel till all of a sudden, where did the other half of the roll go? But then <laughs> once you get to the second half of the roll, it goes a whole heap faster, doesn't it? Oh, it sure does. And all of a sudden <laughs> that paper towel is empty, but we still had half a roll a month ago, you know. So, yes. and it's that same kind of thing. It's the slow drip of, mm. yeah, okay, I'm working really long hours. I know that, but I'm building a business. I'm working really long hours, but we've just taken on this new staff member or this person. So I need to put in the extra and then I'll be able to step back and, you know, That's but right. I'll just get over this and then, and then, and then, and then you collapse in your osteo's office. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So the level of justification and rationalization is insane. Yeah. Because we're very good at saying, you know, giving ourselves reasons and excuses as to why we are as we are. And especially when you are your own boss mm. and it is your business and you're, you know, you want to keep it. You what you, you know, spent, you've invested so much to make it work yeah. and to make it successful. 
you feel well this is just what is has to be done so you keep on keeping on even though you've gone way past the stop signs yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so looking back now what do you think some of those warning signs were that you probably should have taken notice of so you spoke about the panic attacks and you spoke about the Mm -hmm. losing weight was there Mm -hmm. anything else that now you think well actually going back two years before that this is where I started to notice the small things and then they built up from there I think it was partly because the workload had increased quite substantially. And, and, you know, while it's good to be busy, when you're feeling overstretched and always finishing late, never getting a lunch break, it wears you down after a while. And just, and I noticed I started to feel a little bit resentful. Mm. It was like, well, how come it's always me? <laughs> you know, that, that song that I can't remember the name of the guy that sang, it's not fair, what about me? <laughs> um, I started to feel like Shannon Knoll, that yeah. was his name. Um, it wasn't fair that I was always the one because I was the boss, mm. staying late, doing all the things that need to be done because everybody else had just shifted off home. Yeah. Um, so and, I think I saw something about that was, recently. You said I'm paying six hundred thousand yeah. dollars in wages, and I'm the one who's still working till eleven o'clock at night. That's that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and finding it really difficult uh, over a prolonged period of time, a to attract new doctors because. Mm. Even though I was working in the northern suburbs of Perth, which, let's face it, isn't huge, um, it was very difficult to attract doctors because I was seen as an outlier because the northern suburbs were, you know, more than 20 minutes drive from the CBD. (laughs) And it was like, come on, guys, are you serious? But they were. People wanted somebody, you know, work that was on their doorstep and I was beyond their doorstep. And so they didn't want to travel. That also contributed to the increase in workload. Uh, and the other thing was, um, because I was, I knew I was getting more and more tired. And, you know, no matter you know, going to bed early or taking a long weekend occasion, I never felt rested. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was a big warning sign. I was never not tired. Um, my friends said to me later, they said, Jenny, it's so nice to see you able to stay awake beyond nine o'clock if we come out to dinner now. <laughs> judged right now (laughs) collapsing the pudding you know gonna sleep again okay when you when you're that tired you're not you're not your best and you're not thinking well Mm. and I'm sure some of the decisions I made about myself or about the practice or about my family even probably weren't the best Mm. and how do you think that I mean it must have been a shock for you you'd gone from still seemingly fully functional although you know looking back on it now perhaps not so fully functional Petering on the edge, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. It is, you know, just that tiny little nudge over the edge and you fall down mm. into the um, giant ravine. But for your family who had seen, you know, your husband had seen his wife and your children had seen their mum still functional and then all of a sudden she can't get out of bed and she's still in her pyjamas at three o'clock and it's still the same pair of pyjamas she's been wearing for three days now. How did they <laughs> cope with that? Though that's an assumption, you know, no judgment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty accurate. Um, <laughs> my husband was was fantastic. He's always been, you know, we, we, it sounds a bit of a cliche, but he's always been my rock. He's always been there for me. He's always supported me no matter what mm. I do or don't do. Yeah. And he said, look, I can see something's horribly wrong. I don't know. I'm, I don't know what it is. I don't understand it because he's never had 
those mm. type of issues himself. He's he's never he's very even tempered. He's never suffered from anxiety or depression or anything else that the rest of us seem to suffer yeah. from. <laughs> so he was he was struggling to try to understand, but he did try to understand, mm. and he knew that. I wasn't going to get better on my own. So he was very supportive when my GP said, look, I think you need to go and see a psychologist for some counselling and stuff. And I thought, yes, I think that's a very good idea. Interesting about the kids, because my daughter was nine and our son was 11. Mm. So at that stage, aware enough to notice that something was a bit different with mummy, but not self-absorbed enough that it didn't really probably impact them too much what was interesting you know their lives carried on pretty much as usual they went to school they came back from school it's just that mummy was around much more than she used to be yeah um even if she wasn't dressed really like this burnout thing mum's here to play with (laughs) (laughs) even though she wasn't playing very well because she was a bit sort of and i carried an enormous amount of guilt about that for Mm. years particularly because of the event where it was my daughter's, our daughter's ninth birthday. And I hadn't been able to go to her party. Oh, I felt terrible about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I could still hear in my head, you know, the noises of all the kids running around playing and my husband trying to keep control of all these girls and boys running around doing all sorts of things in the garden. And um, I just felt so bad that I wasn't able to participate in any useful form or even to show my face I just hid in the bedroom and when I wrote the book Thriving Mind I actually included that story Mm. in the beginning and when it was published I said to both our children I said this is something I think you need to read before other people do yeah (laughs) (laughs) we've never it's it was something we'd never talked about as Mm. a family because the the guilt and the shame and everything else I'd buried so deep I had sort of pushed it to one side for a long time. So writing the book was actually quite cathartic, but also made me realise how far I'd come beyond recovering. And my daughter turned around and said, I don't remember that birthday party at all. <laughs> she had no recollection of me missing it. Yeah. And I thought... I've been carrying around guilt for this for how long now? <laughs> you didn't even care. <laughs> she didn't she was she was a bit gobsmacked that that's actually what happened yeah and why I stopped being a GP and it was the same from for our son um they said it sort of made sense that you know what they had observed but no it hadn't really sort of impacted and registered (laughs) which you know it's I think as parents we do that all the time we think oh my goodness I'm not there for you know for this I'm going to have ruined my child's life or whatever but actually Often it's the small things that you are there for, you know, reading bedtime stories or, and it's yes. how we make our children. I heard something which is, you know, children don't remember specific events. What they remember is how you made them feel. And, Absolutely. You know, so yeah. it's a really great example of that. She has no recollection <laughs> of you not being there for the ninth birthday party, despite the fact you've carried that guilt for how long? <laughs> long <time>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think there's probably a podcast in that all by itself as to as mums, how do we put down that mother's guilt? Yes, because, oh, my goodness, we do carry it around with this, Mm. all that excess baggage on our shoulders for years sometimes, and it's completely unnecessary if we could just sort of bring ourselves to address it. Yeah. And and I guess a regret I have from that time is that if I had spent time actually 
explaining what was going on more openly with both of them, I could have alleviated a lot of that guilt yeah. at that time. Yeah, that's it. You know, they were young because our kids are actually much more resilient than we give them credit for, I think. They really are. I do think that we could learn a lot if we, you know, sat down and saw how they deal with the, the world and the environment that particularly at the <laughs> moment, the environment that we're in. Yes. Um, mm. um, so mm. one of the things that you spoke about before was around how much you cared as a GP. So do you mm. think that there's an idea that you can actually care too much? Yes. Yes. I remember in medical school, actually, we were told not to get emotionally involved with our patients mm. because it's good for us. And at the time I thought, what a load of old tosh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a human being. I'm, I'm hopefully going to be qualifying as a doctor, but a doctor is someone who is a healer, someone who is helping to restore health and well-being. If I don't care, what am I doing? It didn't, didn't make sense to me. But I do know that caring too much can be a, a danger for those people who are in different forms of caring work, mm. whether you're a doctor or an allied health worker or a teacher. There are a lot of teachers out there who care deeply about their pupils. They care yeah. so much. And I see them struggling, trying to fight off burnout as well because they care so much. Yeah. And it's and it's and we know from the research that the people most at risk of burning out are those that always come from a place of service who are always there to assist other people first. And it's the old cliche, you know, oxygen mask in the mm, plane. Yeah. We forget that we need to put our own oxygen masks on and we have our, we need to be able to give ourselves permission to do so and to do it early on in the pace and not wait till it's about to run out of oxygen. Yeah. And, you know, as somebody who has been the person at the front of the room who's telling a group of women, you know, explaining that whole oxygen mask thing and mm. explaining the importance of that and you can't pour from an empty cup and, you know, while I understand that you feel like your family's relying on you, what's going to happen if you're broken and you're not there to look after your family? It's still really hard when you apply that to yourself and you have to put your own oxygen mask on. It is. So I think the only way to get better at uh, avoiding burnout, and the thing is, of course, if you've had burnout once, it's it's like other things that mm. can come back to haunt you again, even though you might recognise the signs a little bit earlier the second or third time around. Um, you also might not. You might just, you know, and you shove might it down too. underneath yeah, chocolate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It never happened. It never happened. That's it. What are you talking about? I'm yeah. fine. <laughs> but I, th I think it, it comes down to self-awareness, and I think that was the thing that was missing in action for me. Yeah. I didn't have the awareness that my personality, my extreme work ethic. I was, I'm, you know, I describe myself as a recovering workaholic. I'm still a workaholic if I'm, if I'm actually honest with myself, yeah. because I get so passionate and involved in what I'm doing. It's like, oh, just feed me more, more, more. Mm. And I forget, you know, boundaries, Jenny, boundaries. See, boundaries <laughs> not are not a dirty word. This. Yeah. 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 And uh, so I think the self-awareness piece is, is the critical thing. And I think the workplace up until fairly recently has contributed to the issue with burnout because we've bought into the idea that the only way to be successful mm -hmm. is to always work hard, put in the extra effort, never say no to extra work or weekends or whatever, 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 because you have to show you're committed and dedicated. And that's a complete nonsense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, when we 
people talk about the great resignation. I think it's just the awareness. Mm. I think people have woken up to the fact that life isn't just about work. We can, you know, do our jobs, do them really well and enjoy a full and happy life beyond work. And in fact, that is what contributes to our whole well-being. Mm. So I have learned gradually how to take weekends off and not spend, you know, six, seven days a week working. Why do we do these things to ourselves? It's so ridiculous. Um, And give myself permission to do fun things because that was the other piece Mm. that was missing in action. I was so serious about doing my work and doing it well, I forgot that having fun, catching up with friends, doing all those social activities that everybody likes, Mm. um, I was put as second or third place. So if work was calling, I responded to work. I'm so sorry, can't come around for dinner. We can't come out for the picnic or the bicycle ride because I've got work to do. I said that far too many times. Yeah. It's interesting, that idea that to be successful, you have to be productive and you've got to be productive all the time. And uh, and I think we our language shows that as well. So the idea of having a side hustle. I don't want to hustle. I'd really quite like a flow. So, <laughs> you know, But this idea that you've, you've got to be hustling all the time. Is there a chance that we could maybe stop? Oh, I do wish we would stop. I can't bear hustling. And if I hear the word hustle, it actually makes my skin crawl a bit because I'm thinking, no, 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 no. This is what's been wrong in our society for so long. All this blinking hustle. Yeah. Let's stop. (laughs) I feel exactly the same. I hear side hustle and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just feeling triggered right now. It's my no, issue. I'm, I know it's my issue, but can we change the language that we're using? Yes, <laughs> change the language and let's give ourselves permission just to stop and just to be and 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 take pleasure in that. Yeah. I love being able to sit down in the sunshine with a cup of coffee and a book to read that isn't work-related, that I'm just enjoying because I can. And not feel all the guilt and, oh, I really ought to be doing this. And there's all these other 10 things that I ought to be doing right now. No, they can wait. And that's um, one of the joys of Facebook memories is that, um, you know, things obviously pop up. And I quite enjoy seeing things from when my children are little and seeing things like, okay, well, the, the washing needs to be done and I could be doing this. But actually, my child wants me to sit on the floor and play this. So the washing will wait. And yeah. it's a good reminder for myself that actually the washing will wait or the the should or the need. Are they actually a need? How much can they wait? My nanan died when I was quite young, but she did her washing every Tuesday. Tuesday was washing day. She couldn't go out until her washing was done. And she died on a Monday and her washing was still there. You know, So you know what I mean? Like it was just, it was still there when she was dead. And mm-hmm. so doing your washing every Tuesday didn't make a difference. So no. the washing can wait. And if worse comes to worse, my kids will outgrow the clothes anyway and we'll just <laughs> take up That's being true. a nudist. <laughs> so yeah. looking back, actually one of the other things that you said as well is that it's there. we know that the people in caring roles and caring professions are more likely to be people who burn out. So those are more likely to be women. We know that women are more often in that caring role. Do you think it's the caring role or do you think it's the idea, there's a quote that I'm going to get wrong. It's something like to be 
to be no, like recognised half as much women need to do twice as much work? Oh, I haven't heard that one. I think the reason, what my understanding is that women are more at risk because we're often in more caring roles. Mm. And although burnout is, is known as an occupational phenomenon, not a medical condition. All right. <laughs> <laughs> at the moment. Um, we can burn out in a number of different ways. And I think as, as women, even though uh, gender equality is improving, women tend to take on the majority of the household chores, mm -hmm. whether it's the child rearing, whether it's the cooking, the cleaning, the washing, whatever. And as a consequence, with the juggling everything, we're more at risk of burning out. Men burn out as well. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, you sometimes see announcements being made and people are resigning for personal reasons. And it's, it's usually a euphemism for they've either burnt out or they've got a mental mood disorder such as anxiety, depression. And we know that all of those things can coexist when I was burning out, I had very high levels of anxiety, which was associated with the panic attacks. But it wasn't the anxiety that caused me to burn out. It was the burnout factors that caused me to burn out. I just happened to have anxiety as well, compounding the problem. I think it's, it's about, like you said before, changing the language and making it okay to say, I think I'm burning out. Um, I'm feeling worried that I'm I'm feeling depleted, I haven't got the energy, I'm not enjoying what I normally enjoy. And the, the differentiation between burnout and depression can be quite subtle. Mm. And I know sometimes people have said to me, when, when they have felt they're burning out and they recognize that as being different from depression. And I know that psych the psychiatrists um, would say, there's a clear distinction. Not everybody who is burnt out is depressed and everybody who's depressed is not burning out. That um, it's important to be able to recognize that you can be burning out and unless employers as well as employees can recognize that this is a recognized phenomenon which requires its own specific treatment and quite often takes a while to get resolved especially if it's got to quite a severe level is really really important but it frustrates me when people share that they think they're burning out they know they're not depressed and yet their employer keeps telling them oh you're just depressed just go to your doctor and get an antidepressant you'll be fine oh That's even that work. i just think oh you're just depressed just depressed you know just depressed it's hello not, yeah it's not an ingrown toenail depression kills people exactly it can do yeah and yeah it can it can have it can have lethal side effects so um yeah so the idea of just depressed and just go to the doctor and just get an antidepressant like are we still living in an age where we have people who think that unfortunately we do and, and so I think the the way to counter that is by speaking more openly mm. about burnout and anxiety and depression so it becomes a normal conversation and it needs to be held in the workplace as well as out of the workplace so that people become used to using that language and recognize that you're human and everybody is potentially at risk it's okay yes it's more of a 
uh, risk factor for those people in the caring professions. But anybody Mm. put under sufficient stress for sufficiently long can reach that point. So as an employer who has 20 staff that, you know, in my organisation who are in a caring profession, what would you suggest that if I have somebody who I can see they're clearly you know, struggling and to me it looks like they're, they're at risk of burnout, if not in that process of burnout, what can mm. I do? Well, obviously it depends on the relationship you have with that person. I think that's the first thing to be aware or conscious of because hopefully you've got a good enough relationship where you feel comfortable to open up that conversation and maybe say, look, you you don't seem quite yourself at the moment. Is everything all right? Not, I think you're burning out. Do you need time? (laughs) (laughs) No. Can you have Um, an hour off to sort yourself out? We've got to report you this afternoon. Yeah, I'll give you the long weekend and then you'll be fine. Easter's coming. Can you hold out till then? (laughs) Yes. A bit short staff at the moment. Um, It's really about being willing to show that you've noticed, show that you're curious to find out if everything is all right because you are actually caring about them as an individual as a person because you want them to be all right Mm. and that showing that you care is showing that you value them as an individual they're not just an employee Mm. they are somebody who is you you know you recognize for the value that they provide in the work that they do and you want to make sure they're all right it's interesting how people get so scared about having these conversations yeah (laughs) And it's not because you're expected to be a therapist Mm. or a doctor or Mm. a psychologist or anything like that. You're just simply showing your humanity in that you're not quite yourself. And I think that um, something going on is there something you want to share and just make sure that you provide them the space to talk in and they may not be ready Mm. and that's okay. It's just sort of, you've noticed, you've acknowledged it. And then if they're not ready, you can pull back and then come back. If, say, a week later or whatever, you think still not entirely sure. Because sometimes people will rationalise and say, oh, no, 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 I just had a rough night because the kids were up with earache or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's more than that. So it's just about tuning in and then keep coming back to say, I really am concerned. Is there anything I can help you with you know and then you can lead into saying well you know how are you doing with the amount of work you've got at the moment is there anything that I can help you with or somebody others can help you with because sometimes just knowing that gives people a bit of a lift and they can move forward again Mm -hmm. and sometimes I think when you start that conversation the person who's who's on that track to potential burnout hasn't noticed it but that opening up that conversation can be enough for them to then go home that night and go, oh, she said this, and then that can give an opportunity for their partner to go, actually, I've noticed that as well. Yes, Or time for them to just go, oh, she said this, and actually maybe there is some merit to some of the things that she said. So, And I also think if there are any other employers who are listening to this, for me I always think, well, I think of my staff as people first, you know, and I want them to – I want them to thrive. I want them to be in a workplace that's supportive. I want them to be the best version of themselves. So Mm. caring and compassion comes first. From a business perspective, though, it is in my best interest for the business that my staff members don't burn out 
because it costs too much to replace them and retrain them. <laughs> and that's the reality, isn't yeah. it? Because um, we know that psychological injury, as they call it, um, in the workplace is hugely expensive and much more expensive than a physical injury. Yeah. And we've got all this occupational health and safety in place to protect us from slips and trips and stuff like that. And we forget that a psychological injury can take anything. Well, in my case, it took 12 months. I know some people it takes less time. It obviously varies from person to person, but an average is about five months. Oh, wow. Um, and the cost of that, because you've got to cover them while they're mm. away, is immense. And if, if they're not recovering or they decided to move on, then you've got to then find a replacement. You've got to train them up. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, then the burden falls on the remaining staff who've got to pick up the pieces. And so it's, it's, it's tricky for everybody. So obviously, it's in everybody's interest to prevent it from happening in the first place. Definitely. Um, you can't always stop it all all the time, but I think we can go a long way to making it less likely to occur by making sure that as employers, we're checking in with our staff and, and asking them how are things, mm. uh, you know, is the workload manageable? I mean, nobody's going to say, oh, no, you've got far too much work. But basically, if they have got too much work and, and their performance is slipping or their level of output is changing, something's happened and it's either happening at work or at home so it's it's just sort of keeping your ears open to to try and work out what it is is it because they're feeling too overwhelmed they've got too much change going on or, or feeling they haven't got enough resources or support or whatever and then just bringing about I and mean, sometimes it's just a small tweak to mm make a big difference and have an enormous impact on how that person feels about coming into work every day. So going back to your story now, what changes did you make to help you re reclaim you? <laughs> oh, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> well, I took my gap year to recover mm -hmm. and I realised that actually wasn't enough. So I took another gap year. I don't talk so much about that, but I actually <laughs> took a further 12 months off work. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. Mm. Um, not everybody has that luxury um, because I knew that I couldn't go back to where I was before. I knew I couldn't go back to general practice. I had many offers. Please come back, Jenny. Please come and work for me because you're a great GP. Da, 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 da. And I thought, no, I can't do that because I was too concerned that I'm just fall straight back into my usual way of doing things, which would possibly lead to a further bout of burnout. I didn't want to inflict that on myself or any of my family mm. or my mm. patients either, because I you know, love them dearly too. So I took time out just to explore different things, to try and get a sense of what mattered to me mostly, what I took pleasure in, what gave me joy, and to look at finding some type of work which would allow me to still feel I was being of service but to also keep me more in control of my boundaries because I recognized how important those were and I let them all crumble away mm. you know working until all hours um, stuff like that so I got really good at learning to say enough mm. and I also invited my husband and some of my closest friends to keep me accountable. Nice. 
because I know that you know I can have the best intentions in the world, but when push comes to shove, I can easily fall back into those bad habits, which then put me at risk again. So if they see that you know I'm I'm under the pump again and working too many hours or doing more weekend work again, they'll say, <clears throat> you're not walking your talk, Jenny. <laughs> I'm on it. And that's a good pullback. Yeah. So it makes yeah. you go, oh, okay, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's a really easy trap to fall back into. So I've oh. just taken a month off work to try, I think with COVID and the threat of COVID and We've all but sort of been in fight and flight for two years waiting to see what's going to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, I took a month off work and then Good my first day back was 12 hours and thought, you know what, we this is not okay. You can't go straight back into the bad habits that got you there no. in the first place. No. So it's, um, it's interesting to try and ha- – that accountability buddy – can be really mm. useful, but you need to find an accountability buddy that is going to actually hold you accountable and not help you make excuses. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. But I think um, the best thing that that came out of it was from from the psychologist I saw, who said, "Jenny, what do you do for fun?" Mm. And that was, you know, when I had that horrible realization that I'd stopped having fun and I wasn't doing anything just for the good reason that it was there and I could do it and it was going to be enjoyable. Making the effort to go and research and then put into action those things that bring me the most joy have been probably the most important facet of my recovery. Ah, I think mm. the uh, the importance of play is really, it's really undervalued in our society mm. now. So yeah. we're starting to lose the we're starting to lose the value of play for children, but I think it's long gone when we look at it for adults. Yeah. And and we know that play is how we um, make sense of our world, mm. explore our world, and come up with new ways to do things. So in the workplace, play or playful attitude is essential, especially in those organizations that seek to be innovative and creative in some way. So unless you've got a little bit of play there, it's not going to work so well. Mm. So interesting. It really is interesting. And I find the whole thing fascinating. Mm. If you were talking to somebody who, you know, was perhaps heard your story and thought, okay, well, yeah, I can feel some similarities there. What would Mm. you say to them? my message would be the message that I I could have shared with myself much earlier was to be kind to yourself Mm. show yourself that kindness and compassion that you're probably giving out buckets loads full to everybody else and enjoy it for yourself too because when we are kind to ourselves and can show ourselves some self-compassion it makes us realize that we're human, just like everybody else. We don't have to wear that super cape of ridiculous nonsense, being busy all the time. We're all fallible. We all stuff up. We all make mistakes. And that's normal. We've all got these jiggly bits that we don't like about ourselves. <laughs> and that's normal too. Yeah. And so self-acceptance and um, compassion is really the way forward because it, it frees you up from all those shackles that we tend to put on ourselves like the shoulda coulda woulda ought to Mm. um, and it just liberates you to 
um, work coming more from a heart place as well as a head place. We tend to over, well, speaking for myself, <laughs> tend to overthink things and overcomplicate things as a consequence. And sometimes just letting go of all that and just sort of tapping into what, what does your heart tell you here uh, about what's most important is, is uh, something worth tuning into and taking note of. And that's, uh, you know, there's that whole thing of what's your why and mm. your why is very rarely to make money, you know. So looking at that idea around that, you know, the need to be productive, when you like to, the making money part is, you know, that's probably your how, but what's your actual why? And most yeah. people, their actual why is actually to have, you know, a fulfilled life or to be able to have the ability to connect with their family or to travel mm. and explore that kind of thing. So it's I think sometimes it's around looking at what's the step further? Why are you doing these things that are driving you down this potentially dangerous path? And is there another way that you could possibly achieve that outcome that isn't going to end up with you in the mm. ravine, trying to work out how yes. on earth you dig yourself out again? <laughs> I see it very much from the point of view of connection. Mm. I feel that when we connect more deeply with ourselves, with that self-kindness and compassion piece, we are then better placed to connect more fully with the world around us and also with the community that we are part of. Mm. And I think when we get those three facets aligned, we enjoy wholehearted well-being. Beautiful. How did you change your view of yourself from being a workaholic to an ex-workaholic? <laughs> And when Letting you were in there, go. did you did you define yourself as a workaholic at the time? No, I just no. thought it was normal. I just, ah. you know, that my expectation was this was normal and I just better get on with it. Yeah. It wasn't until afterwards on reflection I thought, oh, that <laughs> perfectionism can really get in the way of things. You know, it was never enough. I think I came from um, a background. My My parents were very... Um, well they were Anglo-Saxon and they came from a very strong work ethic mm. you only had value when you were striving hard yeah and so I was brought up to believe that and so I would try my hardest at everything but but the feedback I got wasn't always fully supportive it was often well what could you do better next time Oh, for goodness sake. God, so <laughs> literally worked my butt off and you're telling me that I haven't yeah, done good yeah, enough, yeah. I've got to work harder. So, yeah, and that was one of the issues that I realised that was not helpful at all. Mm. You know, learning that enough is enough. Mm. You don't have to be 110% at everything. In fact, it's it's a hiding to nothing. You're, you're just destroying yourself because you're trying to reach something that is it's unreachable. Mm. Working out that a lack of or imperfection is actually what adds to our inner beauty <laughs> it's is actually something i can take on board yeah. um have you heard of kintsuji no. i think it's how you say it. kintsuji it's i think it comes from the japanese where you have a well there's a story where a long time ago somebody important broke their favorite bowl ah and, and they fixed it with gold that's the yes. one yes 
And by doing that, although it was imperfect because Mm. it was never going to be the same bowl again, they actually created something more beautiful. And I think when we can accept our imperfections and recognize this is what makes us the people we are, and it makes us more interesting because it means we're not bland and beige and the same as everybody else. I think there's there's the same kind of thing with the, you know, you know, a mirror, mirror ball, disco ball is made up of thousands of pieces of broken, broken mirror. So you're not actually broken. You're a disco ball in the making or you know, same <laughs> with the mosaic type thing. You know, you're, you're not broken. You're just the start of a beautiful picture that's going to emerge. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that's right. I think mm. one of the things I loved about reading, reading your book was that it didn't necessarily, you don't have to change your entire life overnight. No. You know, there's, you can incorporate. Oh, please, I don't want anybody to do that. <laughs> because that's not achievable or sustainable, right? No, that's right. So it's yeah. about making achievable and sustainable small changes. And if you can make small changes and then, you know, stack one small change on top of another small change, then that in itself makes big changes. Absolutely. And that's that's something I think it's so important. It's not about radically overhauling everything you do. Mm. It's about recognizing which facets of your life maybe could do with a little bit of love and attention Mm. and just to make one small change at a time, because then it makes it more likely that you're going to achieve that desired change because we know how hard it is to change stuff. (laughs) Even if it's sort of like, I'm going to sort of stop drinking alcohol or I'm going to go to the gym twice every week, you know, if we set ourselves too much to change too quickly, mm. we're setting ourselves up to fail and then we sort of berate ourselves and say, oh, I knew it wasn't going to work. Um, but just sometimes it's a little tweak. And I think this is where um, the work of people like James Clear in his great book, Atomic yeah. Habits, is so great because he reveals that it, the power of small tiny mm. little tweaks is what makes the biggest change because as soon as you do one small thing and you think oh that worked quite well now I can do another yeah and then another and another um it's like compound interest yeah. so you start off with one small thing and all of a sudden over a period of time you're because we're always continually evolving we're never staying the same it means that we've got the opportunity to move towards our future selves in a sustainable way and I think that's so important because Again, it goes back to you are not wrong. You are not broken. Yeah. It's just that sometimes we have set ourselves up to fall into a bit of a pickle. Yeah. And so we need to unpickle ourselves. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely the technical term, right? <laughs> definitely the technical term, yeah. unpickling. <laughs> but I think that that's often what I hear is I know what I need to do. I need to do this, 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 but it all just feels exactly it all just feels too much, right? You think, well, okay, out of those 27 things that you've just listed that are all really important, what could you do right now? One thing. One thing. One thing. One small thing. One small step, one small movement in the right direction. Because if you try and do 27 things, it's not going to work. And then it's going to add to that feeling of I'm a failure. Yep, that's right. And so, yeah, I guess that's kind of the, what I would encourage people is what is one thing that you can do to move forward Mm -hmm. rather than 27 that's going to make you feel like a failure. Yeah. 
And I think overall, I mean, burnout is something that it's it's a modern phenomenon mm. that we need to rectify, and we can rectify it by recognizing who we are as people and and understanding what's actually important and to have those boundaries in place that keep us safe. But I think it's also about, you know, just living life as it's meant to be lived. And we are on this planet, not simply to work. Mm. I think, you know, work has become a really important component of our lives, uh, but it's not just the paycheck. I mean, we, it's, it's good if we've got a job that makes us feel fulfilled, that we love doing, that we have great people to work alongside with, because that makes us feel great. And we know that we're making a positive difference to the universe. Wonderful. But it's only one facet of our life. And even though we spend most of our waking adult life in this place we call work, yeah. <laughs> there's plenty of other time where we can spend really great time doing other things, whether it's a hobby, you know, like painting or dancing or you know, spending time with your kids. It's just so important to not allow um, your headstone to read, here lies Jenny, she worked very hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what I want to be remembered for, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah most definitely. And I think... Um... You know, it's something that we see a lot with women who have recently had babies. They, wow. you know, prior to having their first baby, often what we see now is their identity is actually their job. So, yes. hi, I'm yeah. Emma, I'm a, insert job title here. <laughs> and so, and then, well, okay, well, I'm not working anymore. So now I have no identity of, of my own. So... Think off the top of my head, I think it's Susan Jeffers who does the Life Grid, which looks at the 16 different facets of life and encourages people to go through that and go, okay, well, there's also what are your hobbies? What does your family look like? What's your, you know, the different areas. Mm-hmm. So then actually you can see that work is just one facet of your life. It's not your entire existence, your entire identity. Yeah. So why are we putting... 97.5% of our energy into that one little box in that grid. Mm. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because I think we, many of us fall foul of that. Mm. And we do identify with our work rather than who we are as a human being. Yeah. And I've certainly was very guilty of that. So um, when, when I lost my business and sort of stepped away from working in medicine for a while, I struggled with that because who was I if, if I couldn't do what I've been trained to do, I had lost my identity. Yes, I was a mother and a partner and these other things. But because it was so out of balance, I I couldn't attribute enough uh, value Mm. to those. I'm better at it now, but it takes time. And I think it can be a real shock to the system, especially when something is taken away from you very quickly, either through redundancy Mm. or you've been sacked. (laughs) (laughs) or or something has happened in your life and you can no longer do what you do through injury or something like that Um, and I often feel for people who are at the top of their game particularly in athletics Mm. you know maybe they've been to the Olympics five times and they've won all these gold medals and they've achieved this and they've achieved that you know they they are the top performers and all of a sudden they move on and they have retired What's their identity? Mm. And I think that's why we sometimes see them struggle. And many of them have big issues thereafter for a little while 
with sorting out their mental health because all of a sudden they feel like they haven't got anything in their life anymore and it takes them a while to to work out what actually you do yeah um, but it, it can be a very scary journey at that time yeah definitely so you you are walking your talk now hope so yeah hope so. <laughs> and you've written um thriving mind so how long has that been out now it was published in august 2020 oh my goodness oh no time flies time flies um, when you're living through covid <laughs> It was, it, it, the, I finished the manuscript just before COVID hit. I had to hand it in on February the 14th, ah. 2020. And there was just a little bit of noise coming out of China about this strange, potentially dangerous virus. Mm. And I remember talking to the um, chief editor at Wiley and I said, because I was alluding to, you know, the overwork and other things that have been going on in the world. I said, do you think I should to mention something about a potential p- pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> maybe you should add a couple of lines about it. Oh, yeah, okay. Because <laughs> the messages in the book actually became even more relevant and pertinent mm-hmm. as a result of us entering the COVID phase. So, um, and it, and like you alluded to before, it's not a sort of do all these things and you will be beautiful and perfect and everything else. It's about understanding as you go through the book as what's relevant to you mm. in this time. And maybe just then making the small adjustments to to feel better about stuff. Yeah. And you also run and it's an online workshop and you do retreats as well, don't you, for people who are getting in the wrong direction to try and redirect them? Yeah. Yeah. So I do a mixture of things. I do some things online for the public. Mm -hmm. I do some in-house work online and in face-to-face and conferences and stuff like that. And I run some on, I've got an online academy so that's an eight-week program that takes people through the different aspects of what it takes to fully thrive. And I run monthly masterclasses on different topics to do with that as well. And uh, yes, I love running retreats. I'm not sure I'm going to hold one this year. It might be the next year. Yeah. And you also have a podcast. I do. Mm. It's called Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. <laughs> I've got this wonderful friend who lives in the UK we met a couple of years ago in Copenhagen oh and we've stayed friends you know how you sometimes meet people and you just click yeah and even though you don't see each other very often well we've certainly haven't seen each other for a few years now um you always get on well and you always pick up the conversation where you last left off and we had a chat and we both found ourselves saying the same thing we both intended to set up a podcast but neither of us had actually done it successfully so we said why don't we do it together mm. so we did and yeah we're in our second year already can't believe it honestly time is just a weird thing at the moment isn't it like it is, it is. <laughs> one day seems to last about six weeks and two years has gone in the blink of an eye it's like yeah. being back having a newborn isn't it yes it is <laughs> Thank you so much for all of your time and sharing so openly and freely about everything that you've been through and, you know, the highs and lows of it all. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we finish off for the day? I think if anybody's listening and they're either worried about themselves or they're worried about some other person, um, just to do something about it. It's very easy just to sort of push it to one side and be better tomorrow or next week or whatever may not be it might Mm. be worse so you have the courage tap into it and speak up 
speak out and make sure that you're put back to the road for full health very soon. Yeah, and much like my dishes, which are, which really need doing, I think if I wait for the um, dishwashing fairy to come along, you know, I wait and I wait, but she just doesn't turn up. She's very slack. So it's that same kind of thing with with burnout and mental health, you can wait for something to come and just wave its magic wand and for it to get better. But I very rarely found that that helps. Mm. So, you know, reaching out, but also knowing that if you reach out and the first person that you reach out to isn't helpful, reach out again. Absolutely. Not everybody gets it. No. And that doesn't mean they're a bad person or anything like that. They just don't get it. Mm. So um, it just means that you haven't found the right person to, to speak with yet. And that's okay because you've hopefully got other people in your life that you can speak to and they will be more than willing and more than supportive to help you you get better. Yeah. And, you know, if you have a GP that you go to and you find that they're dismissive, there's other GPs at the practice. There's other practices. You've got got family, you've got friends, you've got colleagues. um, There's psychologists, there's, you know, there's a plethora of different people who you can go to and it's... It's really hard when you finally get the courage to reach out for help and find that a door gets slammed in your face, but I would encourage yes. people to to knock Absolutely. on another door. Yeah. The first psychologist I actually went to after I, I burned out wasn't the right person for me. Mm. I sat there in tears with using the entire contents of her tissue box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... I just knew from from how the conversation was. I thought, no, this is not the person who's going to help me to recover. Yeah. So I thanked her sincerely for her time and then went on to find a different person. And that person was just fantastic. So, yes, don't be scared if if the first person isn't quite the right fit. It's it's so important to have somebody that you can relate to, yeah. who you feel is really listening really taking things on board and, and gets where you're coming from. And I, I think that, you know, if you if you put on a pair of shoes and you get blisters, you don't mm. throw the shoes away and decide you're never going to wear shoes ever again. So sometimes, you know, sometimes it's about going, oh, this feels a little bit uncomfortable. Can I get through this? Is this okay? And sometimes mm. it's about going, these shoes are three and a half sizes too small Shoes in general isn't the problem. It's this particular pair. I need to find another pair of shoes. So same with your psychologist. Sometimes you go and you sit down and you just think, what is this person sitting across from me? This is not going to work. There's no connection here or, you know, Mm. that's okay. It's okay to say this relationship isn't going to work. I need to find another psychologist. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Perfect. Any Anything else that we've – I know we've been all over the place today, but <laughs> – No, I think I think that's – that's a, it's been a wonderful conversation, Emma. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. Uh, my only parting message would be yeah, let's be kinder to each other and let's really care for each other. Mm. And let's uh, be kind to ourselves. And kind to ourselves, yeah. absolutely. I think yes. remember – would you say these things to a friend? Would you say these things to an enemy? You know, if you wouldn't say these things to an enemy or you wouldn't say these things to a friend, maybe we need to look at how we're talking to ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Thank you so much for everything that you've brought today. I really appreciate it and I've really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you.
Thank you for joining me for today's episode of A Hidden World of Women, a podcast brought to you by Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. For more information on the services we offer, head to whws.org.au or Women's Health and Wellbeing Services on YouTube and social media. Looking forward to the next episode where we uncover the hidden world of women.